Hello, welcome to a special edition of the Classical Music Pod. This week we've put our usual shenanigans to one side in order to reflect on some of the hurdles that the classical music world will have to traverse as part of its post-Covid recovery. Frequent international travel has been a big part of the industry for many years, but as the world wakes up to the threat of climate change, some are beginning to question its necessity. Now the initial shock of the pandemic has subsided, the fragility of the system has been thrown sharply into focus. Many are seeing the current pause as an opportunity to rethink the status quo. Today we're going to do some blue sky thinking. Is stopping touring altogether really the solution? Is it even viable? Is it artistically healthy or is it damaging? What other models might we seek to replicate? And will there even be anything left of the industry to salvage? Tim, these are all huge questions. You've spent the last couple of weeks wrestling with them, speaking to some of those who have skin in the game and analysing the available data in an attempt to get some answers. Yes, it all started after a conversation I had with the German conductor and founder of Stargaze, André de Ridder. André was on tour in the US with the Pavel Haas Quartet when the lockdown was announced. Although we chatted about lots of different things, including our mutual experiences of lockdown, it was this next comment that I found most intriguing. There was a small microphone malfunction, so sorry about that, but I've done my best to clear up the audio from the microphone facing me. For me at the moment that I'm thinking, and I've always been thinking a little bit because the way, for example, my, the way I, well, the conductors work when you're, if you're an internationally working conductor, how that works, it's a sort of weekly wheel, um, wouldn't, wouldn't want to call it a hamster wheel, but, you know, everything's in a matrix of orchestra weeks around the world, and the soloists and conductors get basically flown around from continent to continent, one after the other, and you know, as I can already see how people struggle now to reschedule certain things in the coming month or year, but they don't know if travel, if these people will be able to travel. What I can see is happening is that maybe at some point there's going to be a lift on the orchestras playing concerts in their own hall, in their own town, but there has to be international guests always nowadays, you know, international conductors, international. So those will still be restricted to travel to those places. So, and I mean, I, I, I thrive on it and I take advantage from it and I also find it interesting and the exchange is, is wonderful. But this idea of doing something as an artist, doing something within your community or living where you work, in the olden days, maybe principal conductors or chief conductors used to be really married to their orchestras. And most music directors don't even live anymore in the city. They, um, I mean, I mean, I don't necessarily think there is a point in going back to what it is impossible, you know, we won't be able to restore that. But yeah, it made me think a little bit about this, the system that in a crisis like this, the whole thing crumbles, because it's a very fragile system, actually. And the question is also if it's artistically that that healthy, if you know that that sort of travel and jet set, and of course, I mean, I've even before this crisis, I've been challenged by my own 
teenage children about all this traveling and you do I need to travel all the you know what what's actually classical music's response to climate change and uh, you know in reducing carbon footprint and all that and it's, it's something we I don't think funny enough in the pop world that's been much more of a subject matter I think whereas in the, I don't think it's been really discussed yet this was a surprise, not because it was the first time I'd heard these ideas thrown about, but because they were coming from someone with a vested interest in keeping the status quo. I recently read the pianist Stephen Huff's new book, Rough Ideas. In it, Huff talks about constant travel and its impact on him, but he never really questions why he's doing it or whether it's a good idea. I've found that most of the people pointing out the problems with touring are journalists or activists rather than the musicians themselves. Andre touched on it there, but what exactly are the arguments against this peripatetic model where soloists, conductors and freelancers, even whole ensembles, are constantly in the air? Well, first and most obviously, the environment. Mm. Julie's Bicycle, which is a non-profit arts consultancy, released some research on this in 2009. They found that the total emissions impact from orchestral touring over one year was approximately 8,600 tonnes of CO2e. Catch me up on CO2e? CO2e expresses the impact of each different greenhouse gas in terms of the amount of CO2 that would have the same warming effect. So a typical year's touring would release the equivalent of 8,600 tonnes of CO2, although that is formed by various kinds of emissions and other damages. Yeah. There are things orchestras and soloists can do to mitigate their carbon footprint. It's also just a tenth of the figure for touring bands. Mm. Still, when you consider that in 2019, British orchestras gave 200 concerts around 40 different countries, and that every transatlantic flight emits roughly the same CO2 as an earthbound person in a whole year, that's a considerable environmental impact. The second factor is human toll. Now, I'm sure there are many people who love touring. It's exciting, it's enriching, but it's also exhausting and has a big impact on home life. A close friend of mine who was supposed to be part of Glyndebourne this summer has told me that they plan to go into arts administration for this exact reason. I have another friend who used to be part of a major a cappella group but quit because of the constant travel. These are people who've trained for nearly a decade at great expense to get where they are and then they're quitting. I mentioned Stephen Huff just now. He writes of a need for a technique to maintain mental health during what he describes as the seesawing of emotional attachment and detachment whilst on tour. That doesn't sound particularly healthy to me. Certainly not, especially if it comes as a shock. That's what I think can, as you've said, send talented people away from the industry they've trained their whole lives for. Yeah. The third, and I think most interesting factor, is the artistic toll. This is something that the Copenhagen-based journalist Andrew Meller wrote about in a column for Classical Music magazine. So after speaking to Andre, I got in touch with Andrew to talk about it in a bit more detail. I mean, 
mean, I think there's a, certainly a place for touring in in the world we're in and the world we'll be in, like long after Corona and when when we're still fighting these environmental challenges. Because I think the sort of idea of an orchestra from a foreign country performing uh, is just a wonderful one. You know, it's too much. It's 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 too much to sort of say goodbye to. So I think that the first. What, what strikes me as the kind of elephant in the room is the fact that even at a domestic level, there's so much sort of needless international travel, it seems to me. So, you know, if you go to your local symphony orchestra, whether it's Birmingham, Liverpool, Glasgow, wherever it is, like, there just seems to be a constant kind of merry-go-round of, of visiting conductors and soloists, and it's kind of replicated everywhere. So you end up with kind of orchestras that all really look the same and have the same sort of repertoire, the same sort of soloists. And not, you, I think what you lose is a kind of connection to the locality. And we're starting to see in some areas that changing a little bit. So orchestras sort of suddenly thinking, well, it's more important that, I'm, that I have a relationship with my home city than it is that I have a relationship with some idea about the international classical music scene, whatever that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's my kind of, that's what I think is really interesting and, and something that we should be exploring. Yeah. Andrew does a lot of copywriting for season braces. He says he's always amazed at how innovative orchestras think they've been, even when they've actually programmed the same things. I mean, the whole point about this is that, you know, it would be wonderful if every orchestra was different. So, you know, there is absolutely room for, you know, for the orchestra that every week has Anselvie Mutter and Vikinga Olafsson and all the kind of stars of, of every kind of generation and pays a lot of money for them. And I'm sure the concerts would be fantastic and people would want to go to them. But it's just that they all sort of have tended to become the same, to look like the same thing. So, I mean, I, I do a lot of, like, copywriting for orchestra seasons and um, and also, like, you know, season preview copy. And it's remarkable when you look at these seasons how how they all think they're so different and yet they're all remarkably similar. Even, you know, like Beethoven year, they, you know, you, you, they have, we've had this great idea to do, um, you know, Fidelio with, with uh, projections and semi-staged and with a premiere the next day of a piece yeah. that reacts to it. You know, like everybody's doing that, really. It's it, it just sort of, it's become such a narrow uh, spectrum of, of kind of ideas. And I think that there's, it's fine for, for these kind of glitzy, internationally ambitious orchestras to exist. But it's also fine for an orchestra to say, do you know what, like, we're going to focus on the people living in Stratford-upon-Avon, what, what they're interested in, the music they love, and, um, and we're just going to sort of start a proper conversation with them and we don't really care about how high profile our soloists are. And, um, you know, I think there's room for it. Definitely. And I, you know, it's an ecosystem, isn't it? And I think the more we have a kind of varied ecosystem, the better things will kind of be for everyone. If you forget what makes you specific, you lose what makes you special? Yeah. I think the danger is that you accidentally encourage a sort of homogenization in sound and, and culture. There's one final point to make here. We don't want a situation in which foreign orchestras visiting the UK becomes a banality. Mm. Visits should be exciting, but when the same group makes multiple trips in one season, which does happen, that excitement wears off. Why did this system emerge in the first place? 
Okay, so we've agreed that there are arguments against, but why do we think this pattern of frequent international travel emerged in the first place? If we look at touring first, money seems to be the main factor. Ah. The theory is that lucrative concerts in Asia prop up the industry back home. This is a point that the director of the ABO, Mark Pemberton, was keen to make when I spoke to him. that you think that this... That, that... Let's be blunt, there's financial. Now, this is, this is particularly acute in the UK. We do, our members do not get the levels of subsidy that their competitors on the continent get. Mm. So if orchestras in other countries are on 80% subsidy as a proportion of their income, it's easier for them not to worry about, their, about income from all from audiences yeah they're in a comfortable place when your subsidy is 25 to 30 percent and you're heavily dependent on earnings like british orchestras are at 50 percent of their income at least touring pays and touring helps prop up the cost of doing concerts in the uk and i suppose it's a it's a way of being becoming a brand ambassador and marketing records and other and you know orchestras have been going on tour for over a century so you know where would we be without you know without being able to get those brand names out and some orchestras you know those there are smaller chamber orchestras whose very lifeblood is being on the road and we talk, you talked about taking it toll but actually many musicians love it mm. they thrive they actually thrive on it it's 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 just part and parcel of this business and you know i would really hope that that could continue because obviously we're now staring a situation where there is highly unlikely to be any international touring for quite a long time to come the priority is to simply actually get concerts back in the uk and that's no easy task with covid19 public health measures it's true Orchestras have been touring for a long time. The LSO was actually booked onto the Titanic for their 1912 US tour before a last minute change. But is it still a cash cow in 2020? Richard Bratby, the Spectator's classical critic, has been a concert manager for both the Royal Liverpool Phil and the CBSO, the Mm. City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. He said recently in another podcast, Classical Top 5, that the money orchestras make from touring isn't comparable to what they can make staying at home and putting on a John Williams night. Mm. The outgoing CEO of the Halle, John Summers, seconded him and said they can even lose money. He calls it the um, orchestral equivalent of vanity publishing. So in other words, touring is about prestige. So which side of this argument seems right? Well, I got in touch with the touring manager of a major UK orchestra. He told me, they're both right. <laughs> Firstly, for some UK orchestras, especially those in London, touring is important because it employs freelance players. Remember, of the 2,000 people that make up UK orchestras, 50% of them are self-employed. Absolutely. Secondly, the amount of money a tour makes depends on what you can charge for tickets and sponsorship, and that will go up the more prestigious your orchestra is. Then it's only a money spinner if you're a glitzy household name orchestra. Yeah, this idea that tours are guaranteed money spinners comes from the good old days when huge fees were flying around in places like Japan, 
but that's no longer the case. I suppose you could argue that the more you tour, the bigger your prestige and therefore the bigger the financial benefit of each tour. That could explain why they keep doing it. But what about flying in conductors and soloists? Why has that become such a big feature in classical music? Again, the justification seems to be financial. It the way we've done, the way we do it now, it works. Yeah. Um, and audiences are attracted by the big names, and it would require a shift, a profound shift, to move to something where it no longer did involve that international traffic of the conductors and soloists. As I say, let's see how it goes, because quite clearly, for, for many, many months to come, particularly now the UK is going to implement quarantining, we are going to have to look local for, for a fair amount of time. Let's see if how that goes. Yeah. Is that true, do you think? Are audiences attracted by big names? Well, once again, it's complex. <laughs> so there has been... A lot of research into what drives classical attendance and there's definitely evidence that big names are a factor but that's as part of a package along with things like repertoire cost who you go with your familiarity with the venue mm. interestingly according to two separate studies i've looked at within that package it's specific repertoire rather than an artist which has the biggest pull so Rachmaninoff rather than Rattle. Yes, although Rattle is such a popular conductor that he's a bit of an anomaly in the data. The picture becomes clearer if you break down audiences into A, regulars, and B, one-offs. So very generally speaking, regulars will attend more out of a sense of loyalty to the orchestra itself. One-offs, meanwhile, are drawn by big names because it's a guarantee of quality. For them, it's a case of uh, effort of going versus guarantee mm. of reward. Of course, you've also got to remember that there'll be plenty of people going that don't know much about classical music or are there with a friend and don't give a toss about who's conducting. Now, a 2016 audience agency report found that 67% of classical music bookers attended just once over a two-year period. Wow. Now, that suggests to me that most concertgoers were attracted by the package that we spoke about just now, rather than a loyalty. Yeah, I think that's, that's certainly strong. There's also a split, you've got to remember, between London and the regions. So one of the key findings in a project by Professor Stephanie Pitts at Sheffield University was that loyalty to specific venues is much lower in London than other parts of the country. It's much more a case of, well, if I don't go, someone else will. Mm. So as with touring, this is very much a case-by-case -case thing. An outright ban on flying in musicians would have a different effect on each orchestra depending on the size of their core audience their location, and what else is in their concert packages. So rather than do orchestras need big names, perhaps a better question is how do orchestras juggle the needs of regulars while simultaneously trying to encourage and convert one-off attendees? Yeah, exactly. Although that question is more usually framed in the context of repertoire, so the split between populist and core concerts. Yeah. There's an excellent PhD thesis on this uh, by Sarah Price, and that uses the CBSO as a case study, so 
check that out if you're interested in this. Mm. Do you think, as with touring, there is an element of vanity in flying in these foreign maestros? Yeah, possibly. John Summers of the Halle suggests that the introduction of cheap international travel kind of upped the ante amongst orchestras yeah. and made them feel like they had to compete, you know, who can fly in the hottest new thing from Armenia or whatever. There's also a theory that agents have a lot to gain from the system. Much like football, but how would it benefit agents? Well, some agencies require certain musicians to be booked in pairs or they dictate where and when these musicians can perform. Mm. It's been suggested, therefore, that they have a kind of stranglehold on the industry, although Andrew Meller thought that this was a bit of a conspiracy theory. One thing about that point about soloists and conductors is that if you explain to someone in Birmingham, or Birmingham is actually a bad example because they have it pretty good, but if you said to someone in London, the London Philharmonic's chief conductor doesn't live in London, has never lived in London, and if you look through the brochure, there's a very slim chance anyone conducting that orchestra this season will will live in London. Mm. They would just think that just totally bizarre. I mean, it, it comes, I think, from this kind of idea over the last 20 years that things have to be internationally kind of validated and this strange phrase world class you know what does that even mean you have it written all over copy you know world class conductor world class i literally have no idea what that means it means that they're able to function in the world or (laughs) i'm not sure but i think it comes from um, a little bit from that maybe a little bit from agencies having a slight stranglehold on, you know, who performs where and which which yeah. soloists you get if you book a certain conductor. Although, to be honest, that I'm not sure that how much validity that has, and it sort of reeks a bit of a conspiracy theory. You have to be careful with that. But, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it could be any number of things, I suppose, but I think it's become a narrative, and it's sort of become a sort of self-fulfilling narrative. The more unpronounceable the name, the better the musician, almost. We've covered a lot of different arguments here, so I think it would be worth summing up the main points. One, if orchestras didn't tour, a lot of UK freelancers would be out of work. Two, touring can make money, but is linked to the orchestra's prestige. And three, flying in a big-name musician can attract a bigger audience, but is one of many factors in a complex ecosystem. Its effectiveness will vary with each orchestra. The question we need to ask here is, when combined, do these causes justify the environmental, human and artistic effects? Who are the exceptions? We haven't spoken yet about the organisations that are already doing things differently. Before the lockdown, the OAE did a European tour by train, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Although they could have reduced their carbon footprint even further by not bringing a filmmaker with them. (laughs) There's also the Helsingborg Symphony Orchestra in Sweden. Four years ago, they decided to only book musicians who could get to them via train or car or boat. Andrew Meller, who lives not too far from Helsingborg, has been to see them play a few times. What's really interesting about that is that it's actually almost not about the environment. Like, it came after a whole load of other developments. And, you know, of course it is about the environment because their chief executive recognises that, you know, they have a responsibility like everybody else to think about, 
you know, air travel. But at the same time, it's sort of a natural extension. Like, there's been a process of change going on at that orchestra, which is really interesting. They've, they've kind of followed the LA Philharmonic model in sort of thinking we need to have a relationship with our city more than we need a relationship with anything else as a sort of priority. So every concert has a world premiere, every concert has music by a woman, every concert it fits into a sort of broader picture. So you never just get like overture concerto symphony you always get this some sort of feeling of relevance in the broader season but also they're really reactive so they like they leave concert dates open without repertoire so they can so if something happens in the city two weeks later they can play a piece yeah. that reacts to it like and I, I think that's a really interesting thing as well so you know like they, they don't have to fly someone in to play the brook violin concerto better than most people can play it because they're, they're not playing the brook they're playing pieces that no one has in their repertoire anyway which is i think you know why they've chosen to do this travel thing what was the reaction i mean you're based in copenhagen not in sweden but did you get a <clears> sense of the reaction when the orchestra announced this mm, i mean it's hard to say they're actually really close to me you just get a, got to get on a train for half an hour and then you get a little cute little ferry that goes across mm. up in the, uh, the north of zealand the island where, where copenhagen is so i, I go there quite a bit and it's really it's hard to sort of tell what you know how it's going down but it's been four years now and you can certainly see that for example the media I mean, we often say, when I lived in Britain, people used to say, oh, you know, the, the newspapers don't cover classical concerts anymore. And I sort of thought, well, you can't really blame them because, you know, they're all the same. It happens, and then there's nothing to really say about it afterwards. Yeah. And there's nothing to really say about it before. But in Helsingborg, you know, because they have these reactionary concerts, there's a story to tell in the media. So they had this guy writing, this homophobic um, subscriber wrote in saying there's too many homosexuals on your... Um, in your concert season, like he used really horrible language. Like he said, you're getting, you're climbing on the fag train in or the Swedish equivalent. And so they set this letter to music and presented it as a sort of cantata with a, a gay tenor singing the words that this bloke had written. You know, that was like a big story in Sweden. In yeah. fact, it was even reported by the Guardian. So I think from a political point of view, they've got lots of people talking about the orchestra. Now, does that translate into people enjoying concerts? I mean, it's very hard to say, but when I'm there, there's always something to talk about at the interval, and there's always a decent house. Sometimes, you know, it's more decent than other times. Yeah. But um, there, there does seem to be a little more energy around the place than if you're in, you know, a provincial orchestra elsewhere in Sweden and they're kind of playing, like, lukewarm Mendelssohn Schubert. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you need to, you know, it's just making something special out of a, a Thursday night concert, I would say. Although they don't have a flying ban, the CBSO concerts I've been to always seem to have a similar kind of local buzz about them. Yeah, absolutely. Their current chief conductor does actually live in Birmingham for a third of the year as well, which I guess is a important factor. But they're um, they're a good example of a UK orchestra with a strong community-led approach. So they recently hired a customer relationship manager and an insight manager, and they have a specific learning and participation team. So their youth programs are excellent. Mm. So as well as the CBSO Youth Orchestra, there are Notelets concerts for parents and toddlers and family concerts. And they've also got four choirs, one of which is unauditioned. Good. 
But I think what's most striking about the CBSO is the way they use their players as the shop front. So concert programs will certainly at one point included player profiles. You can actually sponsor a player, I think. And they have a great social media presence, spotlighting individuals, which is something they did well before lockdown. They also mm. have amateur adult player long days coached by the players themselves. That's a point. When you connect with your local amateur adults, it can be really important, seeing as they're much more likely to become loyal concert goers and make donations. Exactly. The Royal Liverpool Phil and Ulster orchestras are also great at this. You probably also heard of B.E. Phil, run by the Berlin Philharmonic. Yeah, something similar, isn't it? On that theme of community, Andre also told me about the Deutsche Kammerphilharmonie in Bremen. I hadn't realised that they were based in an East Bremen comprehensive school. I mean, maybe that the only insurance that we as performing artists can give ourselves is to try and see what we can do within the artistic community or performing community where we where we live. I mean, I know a lot of people try that anyway and say it's easier said than done, you know. And it, this ranges from teaching jobs to being in local ensembles and and orchestras. But you know, for example, if you take the example of of Stargaze, it's a great thing because it's very European, and we have like you know, out of twelve core members, ten are from different European countries. But it also means mostly they live there, and we get together for the project, so it includes having to travel. But I would, I would like for this ensemble to be a sort of be in residence somewhere where we can, you know, we can get together regularly, or out of which we can work regularly and do something more uh, recognizable, like, a, like you know, like a, like a season or a, or a consistent presence for certain for certain communities or audiences. Mm. Not unlike what you know, if you think of this scheme, the Deutsche Kammerphilharmonie Bremen, for example, have pioneered. Uh, where they set up shop in a school uh, in a quite a difficult, tricky neighborhood in Bremen. And, you know, that, that became the headquarter and they keep, even though they're an internationally touring orchestra, uh, it's become a very important thing for them in, in their town uh, to be connected with their school, rehearsing in that school and doing a lot of outreach work or in, inwards reach really in that school for, for the pupils. And that's a, they've done that, you know, for quite some time. And I think it's a great example that, you know, more people should be looking at now again. Why aren't more orchestras doing this? It's been four years now since the Helsingborg Symphony announced their new model. From what Andrew has said, it sounds as though they've made a great success of it. So, coronavirus aside, why don't you think more orchestras are doing the same? I count six possible reasons. One, as we mentioned earlier, stopping international travel could mean a loss of income for orchestras, which most affects those with small subsidy. Two, Andrew talked about reactive programming. However, as much as you and I might bulk at another performance of Rack 3, many go to concerts specifically for that kind of repertoire. Yep. And this brings us back to balancing the needs of both core and populist audiences. Three, the OAE's train trip to Budapest put the total budget into deficit. Ah. It also took 24 hours. And many groups and individuals simply can't afford that. Four, festivals are a huge part of orchestral seasons. 
cutting travel would mean a drastic rethinking of something like the proms, which receives orchestras and soloists from all over the world. Five, there aren't enough gigs for freelance musicians. They need to travel often abroad to get enough work. Yeah. Six, finally, there's a point that Mark brought up nationalism he and others worry that going local could exacerbate protectionism and atomization this isn't unique to the art sector and a big effort is going to be needed to distinguish pro-environment localism from nationalism that's a lot of reasons and presumably even if individuals want to make changes they're often beholden to the orchestras that are paying them yeah so if we want to see more Helsingborgs, changes need to come from those at the top, not just orchestral management, but people with the power to change funding models. What effect might COVID have on the conversation? We haven't yet touched on, or perhaps more appropriately mentioned at a social distance, coronavirus. The lockdown will have a big impact both in the short and long term. Indeed! As we discussed on the last podcast, social distancing is a disaster for any organisation that relies on public gathering. The Royal Albert Hall, for example, needs 85 to 90% attendance to turn a profit. Socially distant concerts will only put them further into debt. This is particularly acute for UK orchestras, again, because they have such little subsidy. Yeah. On average, 50% of their earnings come from commercial activity. That's why we're seeing European orchestras bringing back concerts, but not over here. It's a particularly cruel irony that UK organisations who've so successfully adapted to a post-austerity, neoliberal perfumed model are now the most vulnerable. Yeah. Do you think there's any mileage in charging for streaming? It's been mooted, but we're all so used to free online content, it would be very hard to put that genie back in the bottle. There are various issues. One is quality. Um, many people are using generic platforms like YouTube, which clearly you can't monetize, mm. uh, and anyway doesn't come with high quality. So unless you've got the massive resources of a Berlin Philharmonic to create your own digital concert hall with a pay-to-view model, yes, uh, the only platforms that are really available are free. Yeah, and I'm, I am a bit worried that equally we are rushing to provide digital content for free that will create an assumption among people that everything on- online is free yeah and of course you know that there, there is the question that there is still public subsidy going into these orchestras um who are not able to put on the activity that that subsidy is there to help and therefore is there a moral obligation to at least use subsidy to make content free. And what about the longer term? I don't want to dwell too heavily on the hypothetical. Um, However, we can be pretty certain of three things. Firstly, the airline industry is going to shrink and flights will become more expensive. Second, environmental pressure and (laughs) flugscam, as the Swedes call it, is only going to increase... Also, this idea of following the science has become incredibly powerful during the pandemic, and that might give more authority to climate scientists in the future. Third, Brexit. It means increased bureaucracy and expense for anyone coming and going to work. 
including musicians. All this makes the argument for an international industry more flimsy. So UK orchestras may have no choice but to go down a Helsingborg-style route. It looks that way. Certainly a better balance may end up being struck. And do you have any other theories on what it'll look like? Well, throughout this period, many organisations have looked to donations to keep them afloat. People making those donations are often part of that loyal core group we spoke about earlier. People who sing in the community choir, who know the name of everyone in the French horn section. (laughs) It's possible that orchestras who have fostered a strong sense of community will come out of this crisis better off. And those that haven't will recognise the benefits of doing so and alter their model. I was also struck by something that the pianist Igor Levitt mentioned in an interview. He's been doing a lot of living room concerts, including one performance of Ronald Stevenson's Pascalia. He said to Alex Ross, Stevens Pascalia is second to none. It encompasses the entire world, African drums, Scottish bagpipes, outer space, everything. But most of the time, if I told a concert hall I wanted to play it, there'd be a polite silence. Here at home, if I feel like doing it, I do it. So, having had a taste of being in complete control of repertoire, artists like Levitt might expect more of a say in their concert hall choices. Maybe. In History Hat on here, for some context and possible parallels, in the wake of World War II, a new settlement for the arts was conceived. The foundation of the Arts Council of Great Britain in 1946, Edinburgh Festival in 1947, Alderborough in 1948 and Royal Festival Hall in 1951 all ushered in a new era for the sector. As the paradigm-shifting economist and Arts Council founding member John Maynard Keynes said, the calm of war allowed us to reflect on what had never existed even in peacetime. Could we see something similar post-Covid? Many have suggested that the current crisis offers a similar opportunity to reflect or to rebuild better. The director of the Tate Modern, Frances Morris, has called for a return to slower looking. She suggests that footfall-driven exhibitions with loans shipped carbon intensively have had their day. Gucci has already cut seasonal fashion shows, calling them stale and obsolete. And the 1975's Matty Healy sees the pandemic as an opportunity to take the climate crisis seriously. Will the same happen in the world of classical music? Nobody really knows. All we do know is that it faces challenges unlike anything it's faced before. It will have to keep adapting and evolving if it wants to survive and play a relevant part in a changing world. We want classical music to have a future that is sustainable accessible and healthy, but before we can do that, it needs our support. It'll be far easier and cheaper to keep the industry afloat now than to rebuild it from scratch. Why not donate to your local arts organisation? Write to your MP. Let them know how important these places are to you. Tell them how badly they need support. We can rebuild better, provided we have a solid foundation on which to do so. Finish! 
Thank you for listening, and thank you to Andre de Ridder, Stephanie Pitts, Melissa Dobson, Andrew Meller, and Mark Pemberton for their input. If you want to read some of the source material we used for research, then there are links in the description below. <laughs>